Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at tmobile.com slash now. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor and activist Nazanin Noor. She's an Iranian-American performer who's used her platform and voice to support the people of Iran fighting back against the Islamic Republic. The movement began back on September 13th of 2022 in response to the detainment of Masa Amini, a young Kurdish woman who was visiting Tehran. From the outset, it seemed to be a typical detention over an inadequate hijab. But as the hours turned to days, we learned Masa was beaten by the morality police, a religious police squad operating under the auspices of the Islamic Republic. She was beaten so badly by these men that she fell into a coma, hanging on only with the assistance of a ventilator, before passing away on September 16th. She was 22 years old. Of course, since the fall of Iran's monarchy in 1979, the revolution has unfolded in fits and starts. But it's this recent wave of sustained protest and pressure from across the globe that has people like Nazanin fighting. Fighting to upend the republic, and most importantly, fighting for the women of Iran to have the basic freedoms any human deserves in our brief time here. Nazanin has fought back through social media, news appearances on CNN, and even traveling to Geneva to speak with ambassadors from various member states to kick the Islamic Republic off of the UN Commission on Women, which she, along with other determined activists, did. You'll hear all about this in our conversation. You'll also hear how she's turned her politics into art in a new play called English, written by Sanaz Tusi which has recently been extended at the Studio Theater in Washington, D.C. through March 12th. It's a beautiful piece about four adult students in Iran preparing for the test of English as a foreign language, the key to getting their green card, medical school, and family reunification. For her part, Nazanin plays their instructor named Marjan. We'll hear a little bit of that play at the end of this episode, but to learn more about English, be sure to visit studiotheater.org. That's studiotheater.org. As for today, we talked through some of the history that has brought Iran to this historic moment, her years growing up in Northern Virginia with immigrant parents, and the complicated feelings just about 
most first-generation children have around identity and guilt and home. It was an honor to do this episode and to sit with the one and only Nazanin Noor. Nazanin Noor, pleasure to see you. Same. Nice to see you as well. Let's start with something that is a little complicated and maybe a little bit of a loaded question. How are you feeling right now? Yeah, being Iranian is a little bit difficult right now. Things uh, change drastically after the death of Masa Jina Amini. And, um, you know, every Iranian I know is kind of feeling, we, we feel sad. We feel kind of helpless sometimes. It's an up and down mix of emotions and I feel guilt for not being in Iran uh, physically. I feel like, am I doing enough every day to help this current revolution move forward and be successful? There's kind of like this cloud hanging over my head every day. And, and you feel guilty sometimes, too, if, you know, because I'm, I'm working now and, and you're doing your job and you're on stage, you're entertaining people. And then also you're like, what am I even doing? You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I feel daily. The civil rights movement in Iran was sparked by the death of Masa Amini back on September 16th of last year. Yeah. She was a 22-year-old Kurdish girl who was killed at the hands of the Islamic Republic's morality police for wearing improper hijab. Since then, according to the data tracked daily by the HRANA, at least 531 protesters and 71 children have been killed. Not to mention the 19,594 people who've been arrested, the 737 people being convicted for protesting, the 110 people who are under the impending threat of a death sentence, and the four protesters that have already been executed. Now, that's just the data that's been collected and, and confirmed. But as we enter month five of this revolution against the regime, where are we at? As you mentioned, you know, there's four young men that were executed after sham trials. There's no due process and justice under the Islamic Republic. And those are just the four that we know of that were reported. You know, as you mentioned, there's over 18,000 people in prison, ranging from human rights activists, animal activists, environmental activists, attorneys, artists, regular citizens just protesting for human rights. And so they still remain there. And so trying to get them released and out is a huge goal. It's a very sustained effort that's been happening. And like every protest movement and revolution, there's going to be waves of protest up and down. Um, we have, you know, gas and oil workers from some of the most oil and gas rich parts of Iran that had gone on strike and some continue to strike, petrochemical workers. We've had mass protest in the diaspora since this all started in September of 2022 that are sustained every week. There's mass protest uh, in solidarity. There's pushes from Iranians abroad to have certain bills passed in America, in Europe for different types of things that would be against the Islamic regime. So they're targeted towards Islamic regime and the officials. I myself took part in advocacy work for the uh, UN resolution, as well as kicking the Islamic Republic off of the Commission on the Status of Women, which were both successful. So there are a lot of things at play currently right now, and this revolution is ongoing, and it shows no signs of slowing down. The part of the revolution is in response to what Suzanne Kianpour writes in Politico, The Politics of Fear which has been a key to the Islamic Republic of Iran's hold on power for 43 years. Can you explain what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis for the women of Iran? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, Iran was ruled under monarchy up until 1979. The last family that was there were the Pahlavis. And so after the uh, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini came in 1979, February of 1979, actually, that created the Islamic Revolution. So Iran went from a monarchy to a theocracy. And under this theocracy, they enforced mandatory hijab. So whereas in Iran pre-1979, women could choose to cover or not. You know, my parents and family obviously grew up there pre-revolution. And, you know, the pictures and videos you see are just as you would see anywhere else across the world. Freely dressed however they want, going to discos, regular everyday society as far as freedoms go. And once that changed in 1979, women were forced to 
cover. So it became enshrined in law. And you could get jailed, beaten, flogged, lashes, killed for wearing, quote unquote, bad hijab if it wasn't improper. This morality police was created as well after this, and they enforce these types of laws. Uh, They would roam the streets looking for women who weren't following this dress code and, again, violently taking them in, beating them on the streets. I mean, there's so many videos. Masajina Amini, unfortunately, is not the first person to die at the hands of the morality police. And I myself had brushes with the morality police when I would visit Iran. So um, it's very scary. Women's testimony in court is worth half that of a man's. Women are not allowed to travel or study without the permission of their husband or a male figure in their life. Women are not allowed to sing solo in public. Women are not allowed to ride bicycles. I remember one time when I was in Iran, before we got there, it was like, well, don't wear bright colored nail polish. And then the next time I was there, it was like, okay, you can wear your headscarf a little bit looser. And then other time I was there, my sister got stopped at the airport and they weren't allowing us to board our flight because she had sandals on. So they made her go buy socks in the airport to put under her sandals. I mean, it just, they can choose at the drop of a hat whether you're in violation of this arbitrary rule under their theocracy. It's sort of always been a sliding scale. Who's in power? One of the biggest movements in Iran happened in 2009. It was called the Green Movement. And it was when, you know, reformist candidate Mir Hussein Mousavi, who was seen as more of a little bit of a moderate, against the incumbent Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was a hardliner. And there was so much hope because Iranians really felt like, oh, there could actually be change. Some of these laws are going to get loosened up. You know, Uh, we're going to have some more freedoms. And I remember I actually was in Iran uh, for that. Two days before the elections, I landed and I saw the hope. I mean, people were dancing in the streets. That is something I have never seen after the Islamic Revolution. That lasted about seven months, right? The Green Movement, yeah. And it wasn't as sustained as it is now because it was kind of also specific to Tehran. Um, But this protest movement, this revolution currently that started in 2022 is the longest sustained effort daily. And it has reached all the provinces inside of Iran. So everybody is united in this common cause. And one of the things the Islamic Republic has been successful in over the years that's now finally breaking and cracking is they have tried to pit people in Iran against each other too, whether it's an ideology you have, a religion you follow, if you're an ethnic minority, it was always kind of presented as it's all of us against each other. But now everyone's come together. And one of the biggest chants that you'll hear that started at the beginning of this was, for example, you know, from Zahedan to Tehran, we will give our lives for Iran. That's the loose translation. And Zahedan is a place where there's a Kurdish ethnic minority. Tehran is, of course, the capital of Iran. So people were chanting that, you know, doesn't matter where you're from, we're in this together. We want to topple this regime. I want to better understand that common cause you mentioned, because in Western coverage of this movement, I've read a lot about potential reforms that could be made within the Islamic Republic to accommodate protesters. But those same protesters are making a very clear distinction, or at least trying to communicate a distinction, which is that they are not asking for reform, but instead a dissolution of the regime. And I'm curious, how do you grapple with both that distinction and then what the people of Iran actually want on the other side of dissolution? Yeah, it's interesting in the way I've seen it presented inaccurately. There was this New York Times article that came out, I believe it was two months ago. I don't know the exact date, but it was it was a while ago. And it said that the morality police had been abolished. Not only have they not been abolished, they have now started enforcing facial recognition technology. I personally know people who have received tickets in the mail because they were driving and facial recognition caught them in their car. Maybe their headscarf fell off or whatever it may be. And now they're being charged with this crime based on this technology. So it's not abolished. uh, And they're just now going about it in different ways as well to, you know, quote unquote, catch women with their bad hijab. So headlines like that were very detrimental to us as well. That actually came out when I was uh, doing advocacy work with my group at the UN in Geneva and in New York. And one of the first questions that we were asked by different member states were, so tell us about the abolishment. Is that, and we're like, no, no, no. So we have to spend part of our time dispelling this rumor and disseminating accurate information. So, you know, very frustrated at the coverage or lack thereof. And that sometimes when there is coverage, it's still, it's not accurate reporting. Since this all began back in September, You've been a particularly outspoken critic of the regime, even meeting, as you just referenced, uh, with ambassadors from various members of state. 
to kick the Islamic Republic off the UN Commission on Women. But at what point did it first cross your mind that by being this vocal, by speaking out as you have, that you would not be able to return to Iran? That's a great question. I actually haven't been able to return to Iran for many years. The last time I was there, I went two years in a row, 2009, as I said, I was there for the Green Movement, and then 2010, the year after. And I haven't been able to go back since. One is because as an artist, I have participated in either TV shows or I, I wrote a script, actually a feature script that detailed what happened during the Green Movement while I was there. So I already knew once I wrote that script, I'm not going to be able to go back. And then over the years, I, you know, I wasn't as vocal as I am now by any means. Um, it was kind of a buildup. And, you know, a lot of people in the diaspora have always been hesitant and scared because it's not just about us being able to go back. It's we all have family there. So we know how terrible this regime is and how they will blackmail you or threaten your families, torture your families to get to you. And so I was trying to tread carefully. And then I would say over the last three to four years, I started becoming way more vocal. And then I was like, well, you know what? I can't go back anyway. So, well, here's the thing too, Sam. You can go. You just might not be able to come back. By not be able to come back, what do you really mean? Jailed would be the least of your worries. Jail, torture, potential execution. I mean, they're charging people with, um, it's called corruption on earth or waging war against God, which it's anything that's against the Islamic Republic is or threatens the Islamic Republic is what it comes down to. And these young men who were executed and hanged, that's what happened to them for protesting for human rights. And, you know, of course, all of us that are vocal in the diaspora, all of us that are working with the UN governments, politicians to try to hit the Islamic Republic where it hurts and do whatever we can to have them topple, you know, we are definitely also enemies of the state, enemy number one. So... The hope is that one day we all will be able to go back because we'll have a free Iran. And I know that'll happen. I know that's going to happen. Well, I think to understand all that you've had to leave behind, we have to go back to the beginning for you. Mm -hmm. We alluded to the Islamic Revolution of 1979, but your parents actually left for the U.S. in 1975 to attend university and study engineering. They ended up staying here as Iran erupts four years later before having you in 1982. Now, growing up in Northern Virginia, your parents would often say, you're Iranian, not American. How did you make sense of that as a child, going to a Persian school in Virginia? Yeah, it was really interesting. They had the plan that a lot of Iranians had. They came in the 70s pre-revolution. The plan was to go to university here, get a degree and go back and use it in Iran. And that all changed. You know, so many people are here not because they plan to stay here, which I think is one of the saddest things. I feel like when you come here too as an immigrant and they were so wanted to hold on to that identity, like as, as I said, they weren't planning to come here and be quote unquote, be American. They were going to go back to their motherland. And they wanted to make sure that they instilled that culture in me and that that's how I was raised. And so I have memories, of course, of asking to go on play dates or to sleep over at someone's house. And it was like, no, or, well, so-and-so can do this. And they're like, well, you're Iranian. You know, they're not Iranian. They don't have Iranian parents. And so I loved it. I grew up surrounded by a community of other Iranians that we are all still friends today. Our parents are good friends. These are, it's like my extended family. And yes, I went to Persian school for about eight years every Saturday. So in addition to my Monday through Friday regular school, I was there learning how to read and write Persian, how it's, you know, our culture, our dance, music, and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes as a child, of course, when you look at it, you're like, oh God, I have to go to school on Saturday. But again, we were surrounded by all our friends doing the same thing. So it was actually really fun. My identity is so tied to my culture and my history. And I'm really thankful for that because it really is up to us to continue our culture here. But some part of you must have also thought, well, I am American. Mm -hmm. I was born here. Yeah. And I wonder like how you navigated those two competing identities. It's interesting because a lot of Iranians that grew up in America, and I'm sure in other countries, but I'll just speak to the experience here, we always feel like we don't know where we belong. You know, we feel very Iranian and we also feel very American because we were born and raised here. And I always was made to feel not now, but more so back then. You know, I always say that it's 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 become cool to be ethnic now in America over the last few years. But when I was growing up and in school, it wasn't. You kind of are othered. 
And then when I would visit Iran, it was in a, you know, they would tease you in a funny way. They're like, oh, the American girls are here. The American sisters are here. So we were always like, wait, so like Iranians think we're foreign and Americans think we're foreign. So I think you just constantly have this double identity that you're trying to make mesh together. And sometimes it's easier to code switch around certain groups of people so that, you know, instead of explaining things and whatnot, you just kind of adhere to those norms in that one culture. And then when you're in the other one, you adhere to those norms of that culture, if that makes sense. Do you think maybe subconsciously you were bridging those identities as a kid through performance? Because by the age of six, you said that you treated your bedroom like it was a theater and did everything from telling jokes and singing to writing scenes and acting them out in the most dramatic fashion. Yeah, (laughs) I did. And I do think that that's a very astute observation. I think that was part of the passion that I always have had for explaining our culture and our history to people who aren't familiar with it. Because, you know, the last 43 years, unfortunately, most of the times that you see Iran in the media, in the news, in television and movies, Iranians as people get conflated with the Islamic Republic. And so people assume that's our culture and that's our history. We have a 2,500 plus year history that unfortunately a lot of people don't know about. I used to do these um, woman on the street segments and sketches that I would write where I was bridging this gap between teaching people about our culture, but doing it in a fun, funny way. My loves were always like Weekend Update and The Daily Show and, you know, when people would do jaywalking with Jay Leno. So just like kind of combining all of that stuff to like help people learn about us and see, hey, we're just like you, Iranians, we're just like you. Um, So it definitely has colored my artistic expression and how I connect to others through that. You very clearly, you have a tendency to make light of dark situations. Yeah. And I wonder, does that stem from your aunts and uncles' sense of humor? Yeah, I would say my family members, whether on my mom's side or my dad's side, are so just full of humor teasing, ribbing each other. Like that's how Iranians show their love a lot of the time is like, if we think you're cool, we're going to tease you. You know, if we're very, for me, especially if I'm very, just, you know, very polite and respectful, it, it probably means I don't feel that comfortable around you. But if I can pal around with you, that's how I show that I'm comfortable. But it's definitely a way that you make light of certain situations and Iranians do it constantly. You know, we had FaceTime calls with friends and family in Iran over the last few years, whenever there's other movements and uprisings happening. And, you know, they're just like, yeah, you know, just another day in heaven here. And and that's where that sense of guilt creeps in, too, because, you know, I'm like, I don't have to live that every day. And I, through a luck of my parents coming here for university and then deciding to stay, I avoided having to live under that oppression. And so that also drives me to advocate as hard as I can for my people. That joke of Another day in heaven, that's something you don't have to say. Yeah. And it seems like that does weigh on you. Yeah. A lot of this weighs heavily. It really colors your everyday life and you feel almost, you do, I mean, not even almost, you feel guilty for having fun or laughing, you know, at certain things sometimes. Not all the time, but it definitely, there's a reminder, there's like a stark reminder that happens anytime I open my phone. Did you feel that way? You know, back in 2002, when you graduate from George Mason University with a double major in government and international politics, and you're moving to New York City and and you're starting your life working at a corporate litigation firm, did you feel guilt even then? I know that was 20 years ago, but did that guilt come with you to New York? That guilt would creep up every now and then you know, when you talk to your family in Iran, it would creep in. And then it was easier. I don't know if it's because I was younger or more optimistic or I wasn't as involved in the day-to-day politics and life of what was going on in Iran. It was probably a culmination of all of those things. It afforded me the privilege of it not weighing on me so heavily. Iranians too, when you talk to your family in Iran, regardless of what's going on, I had a friend who her father, just in the last two months, the militia, the police, the undercover police in Iran, as they were shooting at protesters, a bullet hit his car. He was just sitting in his car and it was, you know, just an inch or two from where his head was. So he avoided that simply by luck. And you think about those things and you're like, wow, even with that, they when you talk to them on the phone, they make light of it. 
because they don't want you to feel bad. But after having gone as an adult and experiencing all those things again to where those memories were fresh in my head, it is absolutely was the spark for me to continue to feel that guilt. Mm. It crept back in and it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I saw it in everybody's eyes when I was there. They want you to have a good time. They want you to have fun. They're so happy that you're there. But there's this sense of sadness that's looming underneath for them because of the oppression that they're living under. So that's always stuck out to me in my head. And it was like, oh my God, yeah, I have got to get louder. I've got to get louder about this and get more involved. So I think it was a combination of all of those things. But also your entry point into being actively outspoken is acting though. That That's, that's where this starts. And I'm curious, even amid these conversations with your family and friends, with a backdrop that is severe and terrifying. I'm sure parts of them still wanted you to pursue your dream of being an actor. Mm -hmm. And when you decide to do that in New York, I wondered, uh, what did your mother think? Oh, yeah. My parents definitely did not want me to pursue a career in entertainment at all. You know, in their mind, I had my degree. I was working in a law firm. I was at a good job with a good salary and it was stable and safe. And as I started, you know, because I was in the arts since a young age, I would perform in my school's theater. I played violin for many, many years. So I was always inclined to do artsy things. I always wanted to be an actor professionally, but I kept thinking I have to be like a good Iranian girl and go get my degree and have a regular job. And that'll just be my passion on the side. And then it got to the point where I worked in corporate litigation for a while. And I was like, this is not for me. I'm not happy. I want to I have one life. I'm going to go chase my dreams. And my mom fought against it. My dad was more supportive, but my mother definitely fought against it for many years. And I get where they're coming from. They came here and they struggled and they stayed for us to have a better life. And so to them, it was like, why are you choosing to suffer when you don't have to? You know, because being an actor, obviously, is definitely the not easy and it's so unstable. They're very proud now, too, of how I'm using my platform. I'm very lucky and I'm thankful for that every day that doing what I do as an actor affords me the platform to be able to advocate for causes that I'm passionate about, not just Iran, but of course, heavily Iran. And I think it's my duty. It's part of my duty for having this platform to use it responsibly and to actually help people. We'll be right back with actor and activist Nazanin Noor. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. 
That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. When you decide to make that leap, you've said that you started from the very bottom with no agent, doing off-Broadway theater before booking supporting roles in two independent feature films. You make the move to Los Angeles, I think, in 2013, 2014, something like that? Yeah. What was that plane ride like as you moved and left behind any semblance of of stability you once had? I definitely felt like, am I making the right decision? And in the moment, I felt like I was. I was like, well, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? If I keep holding myself back with fear, I'll never go. I had always thought I'm going to start off in New York because it's like, you know, smaller market and let me see what I can get done there. I do think I will say this is the one thing I always say. It's just one of the only regrets I have is that I did kind of come to L.A. too soon. Maybe I wasn't ready yet for L.A. and that maybe I should have waited another year or two. And why is that? I had just booked my first speaking role, recurring co-star on, on television. And then I thought, Maybe if I had waited in New York, I could have gotten something a little bit bigger because my agent was telling me things and there's like casting director or two that was like, oh, she should stay. She should wait. You know, she'll test if she stays. And so I think that stuck in my head where when I left, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have gone. Maybe I should have listened to them. I mean, it is what it is. I did what I did. And I think maybe because I was younger when I did move, I had more of a bold like, yeah, of course, it's going to be great. I'm going to make it work. And then you still struggle in L.A., of course. How did you make it work? You had to hold down part time jobs, I imagine, right? Oh, yeah. I was a tutor. I worked for a really shishi, high-end, members-only gym that has branches across the world. I think you know which one it is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Rhymes with socks. Equisocks. <laughs> but I will say, when I was there, it was really funny because I worked in the West Hollywood location, so everybody knew that everyone that was working there behind the desk or as a trainer, you're probably there as an actor. So people were very encouraging. And I'll never forget some of the actors that were like, actually took the time to talk to me and ask me about callbacks and auditions and give us like, give me like a motivational speech. It was really wonderful. Do you want to shout out a specific actor that, that you feel grateful for, indebted to? Yeah. You know what? I will. I will say one of them. It was Marlon Wayans. He'll never remember this, but he came in and he saw me reading sides and he was like, what is that for? And I told him, and we'd had some banter here and there and, and I'd made him laugh a few times. So I told him it was for a comedy. I don't remember what, what show it was for, but, and he was like, all right, great. Let me know what happens. I hope you get it. Like, you know, go break legs. And then a week later he came back and he actually came up to me and he was like, what happened with the audition? I was like, oh my God, I got a call back. And he was like, oh, you're going to kill it. You're hilarious. You know, do this. Just remember this and that. And you're going to be fine. Go in there, be yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't get the part, but he talked to me afterward and he was like, oh, I just want to like give you a couple bits of advice. I think maybe you should try doing stand-up first. And I think you could do well on the stand-up scene and in this circuit. And then you'll be able to tour and think of all the regular everyday things that people do that are funny. That's what people relate to. You know, like the guy on the bus, everyone's going to know about that one guy on the bus that, I don't know, takes his shoes off. Or he was just giving me examples of like how I can build a set that is good and that will actually get a crowd involved. I'll just never forget the kindness and the time he took out to talk to me and actually come up to me and ask me and remembered a week later that I had a callback. So yeah, he was super cool. Really appreciate that about him. I love that. I think that, you know, if you're lucky, you have people that kind of stop along the way that maybe see things before you can see them. 
people don't realize sometimes, like even him doing that just a few times, it was really motivating for me to hear that from someone that I respected. First of all, because I think his family is so talented. I used to watch In Living Color. So like being able to talk to him was very cool for me in general. To have that person come and give you that motivation, someone that you look at as successful, it reignites that passion in you that maybe starts getting snuffed out in LA sometimes because it's so hard and, you know, LA is LA. So it comes with its own challenges. It's very motivating for people to create this ripple effect of kindness and motivation for other artists that are in their struggle phase, you know? Well, I think that phase kind of crescendos in 2016, 2017. It's then when your mother is fighting cancer, you're laid off from a job and there is some, I think, boyfriend at the time that there were problems. I, this is a quote I'm reading now. That really wasn't that long ago. My mom had thyroid cancer, but it was in 2008 or nine. And she beat it, thankfully, knock on wood, been in remission ever since. Um, yeah, no, 2017 was really hard. I was living with my boyfriend at the time, and then I found out he was cheating on me, and we were very close to getting engaged. He had asked my parents for my hand, and there was a ring and all this stuff I found out later. I just felt so, you know, you feel like, what is my life? Who is this person that I've been sleeping next to? There's so much betrayal and lies. And then I had gotten close to so many things. I remember in that year and it just kept not happening. And so the culmination of that made me just so down. And I was like, I got to get out of LA for a little bit. Or my fear was if I stay here and try to push through this without being close to my family and close friends, it could really do a number on my mental health. And maybe I'll just want to quit and leave. And I didn't want to do that. You know, even in that, in the moments of sadness and desperation and depression that I was in, in that moment, I, I had enough, a little bit of clarity to think, okay, I got to do what's best for myself and not try to push this through and be quote unquote strong. So I left LA for about a year and I came back home to the DC area to be with my family and close friends. And I'm so glad I did that because it rejuvenated me. It sparked my creativity again. That's when I started doing these women on the street segments and sketches that actually caught the attention of producers that cast me on a show, Persia's Got Talent from the Got Talent franchise. So I became a judge. So yeah, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, it was a tough time. Now, that low moment, when you go back home uh, to the East Coast, and you make these YouTube videos that you're talking about. The most notable character, I think, that comes out of this is uh, the Persian mom. Why don't we take a look at a clip from a video called Driving with a Persian Mom. Oh, I'm so hot. Can you turn the AC on a little bit? Whew. Thank you. Turn it, yeah, turn it higher, 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 lower, lower, higher. A little higher, lower. No, that's too hot. Actually, turn off, turn off. We open window. You're seriously driving me Thank crazy. You. I said don't go over bump like that. I'm putting my lipstick on. Be careful. Yeah, about fast. About oh, so hot. Look at this. I went to Lord and Taylor. Brand new. Michael Kores, top designer, brand new. They had 25% coupon. Then they gave me $10 off. Michael Kores bag 200. Everything is in it. Are you hungry? Do you want food? You want water? You don't want water? You want tea? You want water? I have water. Do you want my coffee? You want banana? I have banana. It's good. Vitamin, potassium. Bukhor. Eat the pistachio. It's Persian pistachio from Iran. Are you not proud of it from Iran? You want the pistachio from California? Organic? Be careful when you drive, please. No hormone, which is good. You have too many hormones already. Yo Ali. Eh, eh, slow down. Stop, stop. It's Mariam. Mariam. Mariam Salam. Hi, how are you? How is your husband? How is your son? How's Leila? Kubi, Chikarmukuni. We are she's driving me somewhere, driving me crazy. I don't know. We're never gonna get there. <laughs> so that was from your YouTube channel. One result from the success of these videos is that some people would send you DMs that would actually be marriage proposals. And I, I imagine this was sent through Instagram. But I, I, I'm curious about this because when someone's asking over DMs, <laughs> like for your hand in marriage, uh -huh. what does that first line read like? Are they like, dear Nazanin, I'll never forget the day I first set my eyes on you on YouTube. Uh huh. What's the opener there? They're really funny and they make me smile. I'm like, oh, like Persians are very poetic anyway. Our language is very poetic. So it's very flowery. Um, you know, there's a lot of, oh, when I saw your eyes and the way they twinkle and your hair. And when they saw your eyes, 
through the internet. Through the internet, yeah. Not up close, but they would twinkle enough from the internet that it made an impression on them. So I have very twinkly eyes um, <laughs> through a screen. But yeah, the way they come at it, some of them literally wrote poetry, but some of them were just like, what do I have to do to come speak to your parents about your hand in marriage or my dream wife? And I'm like, you don't even know who I am. I can't be your dream wife. But they kept it pretty classy and respectful. Some of them not, but... Yeah, it gets a little disorienting and you're like, whoa. And then you also start thinking, I got to be really careful about what I post and where I post from. So, you know, people don't just show up places that you're at. I would get messages like that too. Oh, I saw you were here the other day. Oh, I love that place. And could I take you there for coffee? And I was like, well, can't go there anymore. So yeah, it's a little disorienting. You're like, it's like a combination of sometimes being flattered and then also terrified. Well, on an artistic level, what these videos did was open a new door I think, to the kind of work you want to make. Work full of humor and pain and everything in between. Work like the short film All of You, which you starred and co-wrote with director Sharzad Devani, and most recently in this new play titled English, which is set in Iran circa 2009. For those maybe unfamiliar with the play, how would you describe it? English is a comedy you know, I call it a dramedy also. It's about communication, about identity, about your culture, how language and communication plays a role in your identity and how you relate to others and how you look at yourself and where you fit into the world and how it affects your goals. You know, it's set against the backdrop of 2009, which is, as we talked about, when the green movement was happening in Iran. So that's the backdrop of it. We don't really talk about that in the actual story, but it looms over the story a little bit here and there because of what it means to want to leave or want to stay against the backdrop of what's happening. Since you're off book and performing this show just about every night, yeah, I thought perhaps we could do a scene toward the end of the play. Okay. In which your character, Marjan, tells her student... Goli, yeah. Mm -hmm. ...about her time living in Manchester. Yeah. This is toward the end of the story, and... um. Marjan has essentially been left by all of her students in her class for various reasons. She's been struggling to hold on to who she was and trying to figure out who she is and who she wants to be. And she is trying to instill some sort of knowledge and wisdom and advice to this young 18-year-old Goli, who is her only remaining student in the class and who's always been eager and bright-eyed since the beginning. I mean, her first in her first speech to the class, she talks about, Goli talks about how she loves English and how ever since she was a child, she's wanted to learn how to speak this language and the possibilities that that could open up for her in her life and in her world. And so Marjan wants to instill some of her own personal experiences to Goli and in the hopes that it could help her achieve her goals as well. So this comes towards the end of the play. I guess I'll do Goli. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. Okay. Where should we start from? I think we start from, I grew up in... I should point out, though, in this scene, um, Marjan's been speaking English with them the entire show, the entire play, because it's her way of immersing them and saying, this is how you're going to learn. No Farsi, no Farsi in class. This is the first time she breaks and she with Guli and she starts speaking in Farsi, which in the play is denoted by speaking just in our natural voice like this. This denotes that we're speaking our mother tongue to each other. Mm. So um, this is where Guli's surprise is going to come from. All right, here we go. Hold on. Let me stretch. Oh, OK, stretch. All right. Yep. All right, get the acting chops ready. One and two Let's and go. three and... Mm -hmm. Okay. I grew up in Karaj. Whoa. Never really took the bus there. You sound so like... I, I, I don't know. That's our last day together. Might as well break the rule. Yeah, yeah, a little. Yeah. I must sound so strange to you in Farsi. One morning after I'd been living in Manchester for... God, I can't remember how long I'd been there, but I took the bus. And... This woman asked me for directions to the city center, and I gave them to her. And she just thought I belonged there. When you speak another language, a language that's not your own, God, you feel so loud all the time. Like the worst parts of your voice are being filtered through a microphone. Your head hurts and the days feel longer. You go years without making anyone laugh. No one has any idea that you are at the top of your class or that you're adventurous or optimistic or that you're kind, really kind. You start to forget that you're adventurous and optimistic and kind. 
How long can you live in isolation from yourself? You need to ask yourself that. But if you can hold on, it's, um, it's everything. Because one day the voice that comes out of your mouth will be one that you love. That's something I can't quite... That sounds amazing. Well, it's such a pretty day. Um, get some rest, take a walk. Don't study the day before the test. I think that's about everything I can impart to you. Actually, I should ask, do you have any questions? Um, does your family speak English? No. Well, my daughter has picked up bits and pieces over the years. For movies. For me. You know. Why'd you come back? Why'd I come back? I got tired. Are you tired now? You know, I don't... I don't know. Thank you, Marjan. For everything. I wish you the best of luck on your exam. And then Goli leaves and I cry. <laughs> and now we leave and it's just you and I here. Yeah. You know, I keep coming back to that question your character asks, where she says, how long can you live in isolation from yourself? And she's referring to the gap between the language she knows, Farsi, and the language she's learning, which is English, mm -hmm. and how she must constantly live within the world between them. And when you're performing that section, I could hear it even now, but I wondered how much you saw yourself in those lines, how much of your family you see in that dialogue. Yeah, I'm definitely reminded of my parents because it's a conversation we were having in a talkback, actually, is that I hope that people walk away from this having a more of an understanding for people that come from different places and backgrounds and empathy because my parents came from Iran and, you know, didn't have a full grasp of the language. And again, you know, we're not planning to stay here. And I've watched them be encountered by people who, because of their accent, my parents were looked at as less than, or, you know, people assume that you're not smart. So when she says people had no idea I was at the top of my class or that I'm adventurous and optimistic, it's like, because you can't express yourself fully with the vocabulary that you that you can in your mother tongue, it's really hard to connect to people. So I definitely think about the struggles that my parents had being here, being in America, you know, and what that must have felt like for them to be on the receiving end of um, knowing people are looking at you a certain way because of your English and because of your accent. Um, so it's very much with me in that last section, definitely in that last scene. There's a lot of that going through my head, what it must feel like and how disheartening and sad it can be to have to feel that. And I feel that too when she says, I got tired because, you know, we say that in Persian too, when you're over a situation or you just think you can't deal with something anymore, you say, which means... I got tired. It's a pretty direct translation. So I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, I I heard it in the performance. Yeah. And it's um sitting across from Gwenny in that moment. You know, she's the young, bright-eyed student who is like eager to absorb and learn. And she's just starting on the journey that I just ended with saying I got tired, you know? So it's almost like, Marjan's thinking like, did I give up? Did I give up too soon? Was coming back the right choice? I don't regret coming back, but also who was I and who am I? So yeah, I think she's really desperately trying to connect to this young girl and give her some insight into what it's like, but also telling her not to give up, which is how I would feel as a person talking to a younger person that's, for example, like, I don't know, starting out in acting. Um, like, it's going to be hard, but like, if you stick with it, the rewards could be very huge. Well, I want to quote something from a younger version of yourself, because in 2018, you did this interview with the publication called Kahan Life. And the last question they asked you was, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years from now? And do you remember what you said? Oh, man. I have it here. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember. I probably said something like still doing what I love or something like that. <laughs> Okay, here's what you said. I see myself writing, doing comedy, and being a regular on TV. I will make everyone love, hate me one way or another. <laughs> but really, 
I just want to be able to do what I love, make people laugh, fight for what's right, and spend time with my loved ones, and maybe start a nonprofit and perhaps be invited <laughs> to Oprah's house. Wow. Okay, yeah, that tracks. What's striking is the order of those wants, because in one breath you said you want to fight for what's right, and the next you say, and I want to spend time with loved ones. And yet, at this very moment, to participate in that fight precludes you from spending time with the people you're fighting for, your family back in Iran. And I wonder how you hold and grapple with that battle. I look at it like a bigger picture thing, that this fighting will lead to me being able to see them and spend time with them freely. And I know that I have their support in what I'm doing, um, which is the most important thing to me, that they're proud of what I'm doing and that they support it. Um, excuse me. It is a catch-22, knowing that being so loud and advocating for the downfall of this regime also means that you cannot safely go back to see your family and friends until they're gone. But knowing that they will live freely, knowing that the people of Iran will be able to live freely if the sacrifice I make now in this time is to not be able to communicate with them as much and to not be able to see them at all, but know that that's what's on the other side, then it's worth it. Mm. That's the story, I guess, you have to say, or that's the story you have to believe in. Oh, yeah, you definitely, because if you don't, it's just you're in a puddle of sadness <laughs> and depression, you know? And I, I truly do believe it, though. I think that's what helps is that I do believe that that's what's on the other side. And I do believe that that's what's going to happen. Because, you know, in the meantime, we miss celebrations, you miss deaths. You can't be there for people's final moments. You can't grieve with your family. You can't mourn. You can't celebrate with them. But I know that I will be able to one day. Hopefully it's all celebrations. But that's part of what keeps me going and keeps me motivated. You know, I got to live freely for this many years in my life. And I shouldn't stop fighting for them to have the same freedoms until they do. Well, on that note, my last question, since we started this conversation with the people of Iran, it seems only fitting that we end here. You know, last October, November, as the movement continued to grow in size and scope, you said that these protests signified a new chapter. This time, this movement feels different. Mm -hmm. That this movement, in contrast to the White Wednesday campaign of 2017 or the Green Movement of 2009, feels more momentous. And so as we find ourselves a month into 2023, does it still feel that way to you? Yeah, that it's different? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because first, there hasn't been this level of unity inside and outside of Iran. The media coverage, while still lacking, is still more than we have gotten over the last 43 years in support. The global solidarity that's been shown has never been shown before. You know, getting the the UN resolution passed to investigate the crimes, uh, human rights abuses committed by the Islamic Republic, nothing like that's ever been, they've been trying to get a mechanism like this off the ground for decades. And now it's gonna be solidified. It's gonna be on record in history to show what these people did to their own people for the last 43 years. This mechanism is specifically for what started in September 2022 uh, and until now. But the fact that Iranians are coming out every weekend uh, in the diaspora to support and to understand that they're not going to be able to stop fighting until the people of Iran are free, the people of Iran themselves, which are the warriors, the actual fighters putting their lives and blood on the line for this cause. They're not giving up. They're not stopping. Something's changed within them where they're like, we are just not going to go back to what it was. We're not going to turn a blind eye. We're not going to be okay with little concessions here and there. We want a complete change. You know, we want to be free. So I have not seen that happen ever to the point that it is now. And I do believe that it's going to just continue to grow. And revolutions take time. The last one took, I believe, 13 months, the Islamic revolution. So we're only in month five, as you said, going into month five. So these things take time. We have to be patient and we will keep at it until they are free. And you want to keep fighting? Yeah. I want to, and I also feel like there is no other option. You can't sit back anymore as an Iranian in the diaspora 
and kind of watch these things happen and not do or say anything about them without, in my opinion, feeling like you're kind of complicit in what's going on. Yeah, of course, there's tough days where I'm looking at all these messages and these videos and this information and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't, I can't handle it. I can't deal with it. And then you just got to buck up and, you know, lean on your support network and understand that this is what it takes to help. You know, it's not easy all the time. And it's, that's why maybe we haven't done it as strongly in the last few years, because it's hard. That's something I do want people to understand that the freedom of speech that we have here is not given under the Islamic Republic. And that even people who don't live there anymore still have that fear of speaking out when they live abroad. But it still hasn't deterred anybody, and it's not going to deter anybody anymore. Nobody's nobody's really that scared anymore, you know? What do you mean by that? I don't know. It's almost like we're all in it together now, and everybody has each other's backs. And um, it's like that looming cloud that they've had over their own people and us that don't live there, it's like fading away. Everyone's just kind of like, all right, whatever, cool. Yeah, we know you hate us. You probably want us dead too. And if you could reach us, you would kill us because we're using our platforms for good. But... That's not going to stop us from speaking out. We, we've already crossed that threshold of speaking out. So there's no going back anymore. The clouds are parting a little bit. A little bit. I would say that. Yeah. And this level of unity, again, I think is the most important thing to remember. And it's not just a few people here and there anymore in the community. It's like the entire diaspora community is coming out in force and using their whatever sector of life business that they're in, using their connections and their platforms to push this cause forward. So I think that is what's going to impact the biggest change too, is that everybody's united. You mentioned that to be Iranian and to not say something is to be complicit. And I think we have to get to a point where I I don't know if you need the Iranian qualifier, because I really do feel that if we don't talk about this, if we just let it keep going and say, no, that's just... That's just the backdrop of of someone's existence, and it's the noise that won't stop. Then, like all noise, you just start tuning it out. And um, I so thank you for not letting us tune it out, not letting us ignore that horrible, painful, heartbreaking sound that can be heard every day on the streets. And so I appreciate you using your microphone, using your megaphone as you have, and um, for coming on this show and being as open with me as you have. Thank you very much for having me as a guest, Sam. I really appreciate it. Nazanin Noor, anytime. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. I want to give a special thanks this week to Sharzad Devani, Travis Hare, and the Studio Theater, and of course, our guest, Nazanin Noor. To learn more about her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Tessa Thompson, Gloria Steinem, Kihui Kwan, Brittany Packnick Cunningham, and Representative Ilhan Omar. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, Talk Easy would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced each week by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with one of my favorite writers working today, Hilton Nails. Until then, stay safe and so long. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.